the thing I can always tell uh, about hearing younger composers working on orchestral scores is, is if they actually have ever really listened to orchestral scores or not. Um, the same can be said for any other style of music. If, if you don't know what that, what a real group of players sound like performing and producing that style of music, then how do you think you're going to try to match that, uh, or mimic that? Hello again and welcome back to the Sound Iron Podcast. I am your host, Craig Peters, and today on the podcast, we talk with award-winning composer Don Badan. Don specializes in creating original music for documentaries, motion picture, TV, video games, and ad campaigns, and also runs the blog for Sample Library Review. In the podcast, we talk about Don's musical background, getting into writing music for ad campaigns, networking and building relationships in the industry, Don's composing setup, the importance of having a plan, contributing music for Steven Spielberg's trailer and promotional campaign for Ready Player One, and much more. So stick around. So, Don, we finally got to meet at NAMM earlier uh, earlier this year, and uh, that was the first time I actually got to meet you in person, and uh, it was really cool because, you know, before that we were just kind of, you know, talking through facebook and stuff like that and it's just uh it's really cool and i wanted to see like what your experience was at nam because for me it felt like it was probably the craziest nam it just seemed like it was kind of a madhouse of just people didn't know where to go what was going on but it was cool there was a lot of you know really interesting <laughs> stuff going on but i just wanted to see because you were it seemed like you were running around a lot and getting all kinds of footage and stuff. I just wanted to know how your experience was at NAMM. Yeah, well, the problem with going to NAMM is um, usually t almost two weeks before I even get there, I already have a full schedule. Uh, and I do, I, I, I'll go for, they have a press preview day, which is before the, um, before it's open to uh, the trade industry, music industry. And so I'll go a day before and go to the media preview day. And that's like the quietest day for me because I've only got about three hours where I walk around. It's just, you know, a handful of 20 booths. Um, and I get to see what they're showcasing that might be interesting and fun to check out and uh, and share um, with anybody who who's a sample library review subscriber. But after that, it is pretty much nonstop. I usually have anywhere from seven to ten meetings slash lunch slash dinner slash parties every day. Uh, and then Sunday, I always try to not schedule anything work, work or, you know, business related or gear related just so I can walk around myself casually yeah. and see the things that I want to see. Yeah, have a chance to sort of take it in yourself instead of running around and doing meetings. Because that's what we were doing. We didn't really get a chance to look around too much. It was just kind of like meeting after meeting. And, uh, you know, so it was kind of hard to really just enjoy NAM for what it was. 
Yeah, well, I think the key with it, just like any other kind of conference or convention or anything you would go to, the key I've always found is pre-plan, pre-schedule, get as much uh, scheduled as you can. And I schedule in that time that for myself to just walk around and, you know, play bass guitars and, and look at different uh, odd guitar pedals and just have that time scheduled and set aside. Otherwise, like you said, it's just a madhouse and you're just running from one, one thing to the next to the next. So that's the way, that's the way I always handle it. Was there any gear that caught your eye? Like, cause I noticed you, you said something about bass guitars. I know a lot of times we tend to check out a lot of software based stuff, but was there any guitars or cool new equipment that you saw that kind of caught your eye? You know, I did a little uh, wrap up video of like my personal favorite things and I can um it's like my personal picks video. Uh I can I can be sure to share that with you and any of the yeah. uh Sound Iron podcast listeners. Uh but I mean in particular I I grew up playing guitar um and I always felt like if I had a you know, if you had if I had a bonus life, I would just play jazz bass. Like that's all <laughs> I would that's all I would want to do. Um, so I'm always drawn to checking out the different bass guitars. They've got the um, I don't know if you know the company. I think it's pronounced Kyla K A L A. I believe they have no, these. I've never heard of that one. Okay, they have these miniature instruments, which are just crazy they're like ukulele size but they have super thick bass strings so they have four string like a four string ukulele bass basically and i was mm-hmm. just i'm just fascinated by those i've been looking at them for 10 years i've still never bought one um but things like that are, are exciting stand-up basses electric stand-up basses there was one mm-hmm. from ibanez that i was really excited about i've always wanted to get a stand-up bass and uh just never have so maybe uh, one day one day yeah. you go to Nam and just pull the trigger on it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do have a, a, a acoustic four string bass guitar. Um, nice. That I love. Yeah. So as far as as far as what kind of struck my interest, you know, those things stand out. There's always the wackiness that's usually in the basement of Nam. <laughs> so that's always kind of fun to see. Yeah, I always get sort of confused and like I forget how many levels there are so sometimes I'll I'll go to one floor and then another floor and I'm like oh yeah there's another floor way down there or there's another floor even above me it's like it's just a labyrinth of noise everywhere but it's cool yeah no it's definitely it if you plan it right um you can get a lot out of it oh yeah definitely uh you started talking about how you started playing guitar and that was kind of the next question that I had was when I first became aware of you it was, you know, through sample library review. And I was just like, man, these are some really cool reviews talking about, you know, the different types of libraries and stuff that I'm into. And I wanted to kind of go back before the reviews and, and get an idea of how you got into playing music. And if you could tell us a little bit more of the backstory of maybe some stuff that, you know, most people don't know or, or just how you got into it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, I, 
I when I was a kid, my father had an acoustic guitar and he had a Beatles songbook and, you know, growing up in the the 80s and you know, hearing him play that stuff, I was really excited about it and uh, I kind of would pick up his guitar, but he they went ahead and bought me just a little acoustic guitar. I think when I was I don't know, 11 or 12 years old. Um so I, I learned chords and just kind of took to it. And that's what I spent most of my free time kind of doing. Uh, I managed to get through high school with, you know, mostly art and music classes. Like I would have five or six band classes and choir and jazz band and marching band and concert band. And awesome. uh, so, um, yeah, that kind of propelled me and got me. Uh, I was able to get a scholarship to study classical guitar. Um, at uh, college, uh, and while I was at college, I really got into the recording studio and MIDI production and managed the recording studio and started producing albums, um, and that led me to music production. I had a company in Chicago that produced, you know, alternative albums and did album coordination and DVD manufacturing coordination for EMI Capital Records. I did that for, I don't know, five or six years. Nice. Uh, and the whole time I was trying to figure out how do I write, how do I get into writing music for media? Because uh, I just loved composing. I'd always, like as a kid, I remember having like an old Casio keyboard and <laughs> turn, turning the sound off on the TV and just playing the keyboard and really <laughs> like seeing what happens, how the picture changes just by what kind of mood you uh, put out through the music. So um, I had tried a bit in Chicago to see what I could do and I felt like there weren't really any opportunities. So I basically just made a list like, should I move to New York? Should I move to London? Should I move to Los Angeles? And, you know, the allure of great weather <laughs> got me uh got me here and from there i just uh combined all my you know project coordination skills to to uh networking and working in the advertising industry and i just kept putting out music independently and using those as calling cards to meet people and to keep up keep in touch with people and you know sending out new EPs of just different styles of music and eventually was able to get uh, a couple advertising agencies as clients and um, and kept getting called back or emailed back to do more and more and more projects. Uh, and that's kind of how I got into music for media, even though it was a very long, you know, like... 20 year arc from wanting to do it to learning about it to learning about the technology to the changes in technology to you know going from early digital performer to pro tools in the studio to uh, now I work in logic and the changes in sampling technology just completely opened up I'd say in the last you know five, six years. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, those were the, 
I guess the, that's the cliff notes. Uh, that's the, <laughs> that's the boring cliff notes with all without all the exciting name dropping. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you talk about just with technology in general because when when I think about when people ask like, oh, how do you even just get into you know recording or like building a recording studio or a home, a home studio? It's crazy when you think about how much goes into it. You know, like for for fun, a long time ago, I had a, I have a YouTube channel where I made this like sort of little series talking about getting into home recording because uh, since I was learning it, I was like, oh, maybe some other people can get into this. And sometimes when I go back and, and I see that, I'm just, you know, it was kind of like documenting my journey. But when you think about it, it's just like, man, like no wonder a lot of people get so scared to get into it because there's so many hats you need to wear. You know, you need to. You know, learn about mixing or just like not even that, just like how a doll works, how, you know, how, connecting a MIDI keyboard to your computer. Some people might just be like, I don't I don't know how to do that. It's, you know, it gets so overwhelmed and it's like there really is so much that goes into it. It's crazy. Yeah, there is one of the one of the things I talk to a lot of younger composers about um, is about those building blocks, just because uh, especially to be. To be working as a composer, you're really working as a composer and a producer Mm -hmm. if you're working on media. And in so many ways, you do need to have that technology background. You need to have the musical, um, maybe not music theory, but musical foundation that you can communicate your musical ideas. You need to be sometimes a uh, you know a, a therapist if you're working with <laughs> if you're working with live musicians to get the most out of them you need to be a producer because you're working with a team to um, to not only perform or conduct or arrange or uh, capture the final piece of music and then you're also you know you have to be an entrepreneur to find the work um, and maintain a good relationship with your clients. So I, I, I found out right away when I moved to Los Angeles, there's a good reason that so many composers really come into their own in their late thirties and forties is because mm-hmm. it takes that long to actually get enough of these skills at the right level. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was something that I kind of saw pretty quickly. Yeah, it's like you're prepping yourself and you don't even know it. And that's why I think some people can give up early on because they think like if it doesn't happen fast, it's kind of like anything. People just expect quick results. And when you just do it because you love it and then just prepare yourself and then, you know, like like they say, prep, you know, preparation, meeting opportunity is luck. Yes. I mean, there is, you know, of course, natural luck, but I think that just comes from being prepared. And, you know, prepping yourself, you know, giving yourself the right tools and knowledge. So when that gig comes, you can just, you know, slam on it and just say, that's mine. I'm taking it. And then, you know, of course, you also have to be a go getter, too. Like you said, the entrepreneur thing. Being able to just recognize opportunities and go for them. Sometimes people, I think they might kind of stay back like, "Eh, I don't think I can get that gig because maybe I'm not good enough. But for the other guys who are just like, maybe I'm not, but I'm going to go for it. Yeah, you have to be that way. Yeah, I think I think you not only have to be that way, um, and you have like you were you were talking about how uh, what is it preparation and timing? Is that what your definition of luck was? 
uh, preparation meeting opportunity. Opportunity. I heard that. I heard that a long time ago, and it just stuck with me. And it's like because it makes so much sense. Like if you're prepared and the opportunity comes, then you know some people might be like, "Ah, oh, you're lucky." But it's like no. Like I've been working at this forever. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I. I do. I do think of the um the the third factor is timing, um because you've got to you've got to get yourself in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and be prepared for that particular opportunity. So I, I do, I do agree with that. I just think that there is that extra uh, consideration. Oh, definitely. <clears throat> so how did you sort of get into the ad campaigns? I, I noticed uh, you were mentioning that you were sending out demos and stuff like that. Like, like what advice would you sort of give up and coming composers trying to get into that into that market of composing for ad <clears throat> campaigns? Well, the ad world is. Uh, very different from, say, the film world or television world in that there there is no IMDb for advertising, composing music. Uh, and there's very few agents and managers who are interested in representing composers who just work on music for ads. So in some ways it's decentralized and in some ways it's the wild, wild west uh, because there's no, there's no direct path. There's no easy path. And, Mm -hmm. uh, but in some ways that's where I've found uh, so many opportunities is, is anytime you're, kind of in the wild west when there when there isn't a clear path and it's not regulated that's where i've always found that i'm able to find ways to thrive or um, develop the right relationships which uh one thing that uh i interviewed uh rich aitken i don't know if you know him he's a score mixer and one Mm -hmm. thing one thing he said which resonated with me in some ways because i've i've kind of thought of a this but i'd never really spoken it out loud he he said i'm a resource <clears throat> to my colleagues whether they hire me or not is merely about whether the budget is there for the project so um i think that that's an important way to kind of approach you know any kind of becoming any kind of composer what no matter what media you're going to be scoring for is you need to be helpful and useful and then you need to be prepared for the opportunity at the right time and have that luck on your side mm-hmm. so I, th- I hope that answers the question <laughs> oh totally yeah because i think it's a lot of times people you know when they're trying to develop their own career they're just kind of wondering what they should do but it's like what do you do that you're, you know, that you're good at and how can you bring value? I think at the end of the day, that's what it's all about is bringing value. If you can be a value to somebody, even if you're just an intern at a studio and you're just taking out the trash, making coffee, you're bringing some kind of value that eventually when you get, you know, the chance to maybe show more of your other skills, you know, then that opportunity will present itself too. Yeah. And I was in the same place when I, when I, uh, when I first started in the in the recording studio, I was the guy that wrapped cables, but I would stay there for every session that was going on, and I would learn everything I could. And at some point, when someone stepped away, I was able to 
pick up the slack and then would get a job for the next project being an engineer. And then, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, the same thing, same thing can be said. I think it's like you said, it's a, it's a matter of wanting to be doing it regardless of if you're getting paid when you start, because there's no good school that necessarily will teach you all of these things. And when I've had people tell me that they want to hire me to tutor them, I usually tell them, well, it's a 20 year course. And (laughs) you're like, "Uh." (laughs) yeah, exactly. Uh, There's lots of things I learned and lots of things that I, I found shortcuts for and, uh, and those are helpful, but, uh, there's nothing that beats the experience of being in the room with great musicians and and mm-hmm. sitting in the back of the room while composers are working on you know scores for major video games or films or you know having having met friends who record and are musicians for those big sessions there's no experience that can replace those things um so Especially going back to the networking thing. I think some people, when they're so focused on just developing their musical craft and or just being able to have the whole home studio composer thing down, that they almost get tunnel vision in forgetting to go outside and just sort of interact with people. So, you know, when people say, oh, you know, networking is important, you should go out and meet people. They almost have this very introverted way of seeing things. So they might not get jobs because they don't have that personable thing, which is also another skill that you have to work on. You know, like some people are just naturally good at that. You know, some people are just naturally, Oh, you know, he's really friendly. He's, he's really cool. You know, Hey, let's work with him. But some people, they might have the skills, but they just, how they communicate with people can almost possibly shut down opportunities. And that's another thing I think a lot of people should work on more is just going out and meeting people breaking out of your shell. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, um, I'm in an, I'm in opportunities all the time where I have too many projects for what I can actually do. So to have other composers that I can bring in that one have the same kind of setup and system I have, so I can just send them a logic file and they can open it and finish what I started or whatnot. Knowing they have that technical ability is important, but knowing that I trust them, I, that I know I'm going to enjoy working with them, um, knowing, you know, in, in other fields like in film scoring where you're spending, you know, a couple months probably on a project with a director, the director is definitely going to want to get along with you like life is too Mm -hmm. short to work with someone who's difficult to work with or uh i don't know a diva or prima donna or something like that so you know (laughs) enjoying working with someone who is capable of delivering what you need um there's there isn't a substitute for that uh and I, i don't know i i think about I, I never understood networking when I was younger. Um, I always thought it was so strange. It seemed so um, so fake. Uh, and mm-hmm. now I'm at a place where 
I don't even think about networking. I have uh, close acquaintances and a lot of people who have become friends that I actually care about. You know, I know I know mm-hmm. either you know what their kids are doing or how they're where their last vacation was and what they're up to. Like I generally care about people that I get to work with sometimes when I can help when I can help them. Mm-hmm. So those building those real relationships, genuine relationships with people has always been something I cared about. Uh, and I also think it can be a strength to be an extremely high functioning introvert. Um, I have no problem, like not literally not leaving the house for four or five days and hanging out with my cats for my breaks, uh, except, except to go to the gym. Um, and then, you know, yeah. spending time with my girlfriend when she comes home. Uh, mm-hmm. But other than that, you know, I can get out to an event and have to change the the consciousness that I'm actually living in in order to mm-hmm. interact. And I enjoy it very much. I love, you know, I love Nam. It's you know, five days of nonstop getting to see people who I care about and I'm excited to hear what they're doing and what great tools they're either developing or just finished working on or, you know, meeting other composers that I I know that I, you know, even though I live two miles away from a a few people I know, I only see them once a year either at NAMM or GDC or some other ASCAP function or or something like that. Uh, Yeah. So it's exciting uh, in some ways, and I guess the whole point of that is being comfortable and understanding myself um, is being a high-functioning introvert. Like, <laughs> that's just where I'm at now. I think I probably was different, uh, you know, years ago. I probably spent – I spent a lot more time yeah. out socializing, uh, and I was very active – I used to have a business card that just said my first name and it said friend to all wonderful person. And that was all it said on it. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I just love to go out and meet people. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that was the the answer uh, to the question. I got I got sidetracked there. No, I think it's really important what you said about the whole because to some people, the word networking could be kind of like a dirty word in how people go about it but really it's all about just like you said developing relationships with people and not just approaching them like hey you know nice to meet you can i do something or like can i just like can i work with you or you know it's easy to to come off to those people who you're approaching as like a punisher like you're just sort of like hounding them but it's really just about like you know, if even if you do approach people and you're just like, hey, like, what can I do to help you in any way? You know, and like not being like not trying to get something from them, but offer something like I've heard of a lot of stories of people developing careers from just saying, hey, what can I do to help you? Because a lot of these people, they're so busy that, you know, they're willing to maybe here. Uh, here's a, a project. I need someone to edit. I need the, I need them to edit drums. Can you do, can you edit drums? Yeah, yeah, I can do that. And then, you know, you're helping them out in some way, but you're not trying to just get yeah that's how that's how real relationships are made is uh 
and, and being being helpful and useful like we talked about a little bit earlier. But the other thing that I often see is I get, I don't know, at least a dozen emails a month of composers basically saying, hey, I'm a composer from such and such. I'm coming to L.A. Can I take you out to coffee? Or I get an email saying, I want to get into doing what you're doing. Uh, do you have any advice? And then once in a while, I'll get an email from somebody who says, um, hey, I love your composing work, and I see that you run Sample Library Review. It's so awesome. I use it all the time. If you're ever looking for other contributors, I focus on this aspect of that. And then I become friends with that person, and I interact with them because I hire them to write for the blog. Uh, and mm -hmm. those are the ways I've found have been the most helpful. When I when I was first here in Los Angeles and I was trying to meet more composers, I met a composer I love. I respect his work. He's just an incredible uh, person. And I came to him and I said, listen, uh, your website's horrible. I know how to make websites. Let me redo your website. I'll do it for free just to spend time with you and maybe pick your brain about the industry and hang out with you. And he was like, Sure, that sounds great. Um, that led to more, not only inspiration, but insight uh, than any other relationship that I kind of have had with, you know, major feature film composers, uh, except for networking, uh, events, and building relationships, you know, getting to have some FaceTime with people one-on-one -on -one at, at events, I should mm -hmm. say. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about your setup because being that you're, you know, you are Mr. Sample Library Review. Um, I want to know what's your setup looking like these days? What sort of setup have you found that works best for you? And um, how many hard drives do you have? Because you must have every sample library under the sun. I'm just like, how do you go about keeping all that stuff organized too? And the organization of having so many tools to work with. Um, it's a constant effort. Uh, let me see how I can start. My setup um, is I work in Logic for my main for my DAW, and I do everything in one computer. Um, I've maxed out my RAM. I have. Uh, what kind see. of computer are you using? I just use the fastest Mac Pro I can. Nice. Hold on. Let me load this up and see how many hard drives I have now. I know I just put another one in the other day. Do you use SSDs? Yes. I have uh, primarily SSDs. And I have nine sample drives. And and three additional drives, one for projects, one for my startup disk, and one for all things sample library review related. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, most importantly, I have backups of every single one. So for every single drive, I have 
I have a duplicate of it. Um, oh, wow. Both physically and in the cloud. Um, the other biggest utility that I use, I'm on a Mac, of course, so I use a program called Disk Catalog Maker. It basically is a, a really easy um, index. So it just scans every hard drive I ever put in my computer and it always keeps track of where everything's at. And I try to keep it scanned and up to date with all the drives. So, um, you know, if I have a project, if I get a call, which happens once in a while when somebody says, Hey, I, I heard your, you know, I, like I said, I keep releasing these albums. So if somebody says, Hey, I heard your album Chronomicon and we like the sound of it. Um, we want that kind of style for a pilot we're working on or a film we're working on, mm -hmm. then I can just go back and pull up those sessions and I've got all the instruments loaded and I'm ready to just start writing in that. And, and I can find that because I've got everything uh, searchable using this, uh, this simple utility program. Um, That's cool. I've never heard of that. Yeah, uh, and it's the only way I can really keep track of stuff. This There's a rough hierarchy of alphabetical developer-based sample libraries across my nine sample drives, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm now at the po to the point where that is going out the window. You know, when when I get a new sound sound iron library, it goes onto the third hard drive that now has sound iron libraries in it when mm -hmm. I get, uh, you know, it's always juggling and moving things. Mm -hmm. um, so having a search engine like uh, this Disk Catalog Pro is the only way for me to keep track of, of things that really make sense for me. Um, you know, just the amount of contact player instruments I have, um, trying to keep them organized in the libraries tab, uh, it's a major ordeal moving everything <laughs> around, you know. I would think so. Trying to get all my sound iron libraries all in a chunk so that I, you know, when I have a few that are some of my favorites. So when I need to find them, I use these little tricks like I know that exactly in the middle of scrolling through my libraries is where my uh, all my sound iron contact player instruments are and stuff like yeah. that. And but, now in uh, in contact, I think it was at 5.8. You can actually search, which is really helpful. There's a search tab uh, right up. The, I don't know if you've updated yet, but on the very top, you can actually just type in a library and, and it'll just. All the ones that are, you know, so if you're looking for sound iron, they'll all be right there, which is pretty helpful now. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, I'm I'm on five seven one. I uh, I will upgrade soon. Um, <laughs> it's one of those things where as soon as the first library is released that requires it, th then I upgrade so that uh, mm. so I can keep my system exactly the same as it is while I'm working on projects. Um, and I usually keep two systems too that are identical. Um, oh. I try to keep, 
I try to keep one as my last good working state, uh, and then one as I work on and add libraries and work on new projects so that if something goes wrong on one, I can just stick a new hard drive in and go back to work. I don't have to, uh, I don't have to like troubleshoot anything, especially when you have like, you know, a 10 hour deadline or something Mm -hmm. ridiculous. Yeah, I remember you were telling me sometimes when a gig comes up, you only have maybe 12 hours to deliver the goods before that opportunity can go away. Yes, yeah, it it's there's a lot of that. Yeah. How, how do you how do you feel working under really extreme deadlines like that when is do you do you kind of thrive on it? Do you feel like it kind of gets you pumped up or because sometimes it can just crush people if they're just like, you know, all right, you got 12 hours to do it, go. And then they just sit in front of their computer and they don't know. They feel like they don't, they've never done it before in their life. Well, the first thing is I love project-based work. I have, with the exception of one job I had one time at a real company, I've never had, I've never gone to a project, a job. I've never gone to a place and worked there. Uh, I've always freelanced and had my own companies, um, and I find it very fulfilling to have a beginning of a project with a, you know, maybe not even written down checklist and then a final deadline in which it's finished and handed off and then I'm free of that. So I've, mm-hmm. I've always enjoyed working that way. Um, I think when it comes to really tight deadlines, there's a lot of craft that can go into supporting that. Um, I'm actually finishing up a, a, a series right now of videos talking about all the tools and techniques I use for, mm-hmm. um, for working on these deadlines. Um, I rarely just stare at the DAW. Uh, I find that if I go to work on a project, I sit down, I try to figure out what it is I need to know, and then I usually will step away. And a lot of times that means taking the my lunch lunch break to, to go do the grocery shopping or, or something like that. The mm-hmm. whole and the whole time I have my earbuds in listening to the playlists of all the reference music for the projects. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, that first two hours is just about research and understanding what I need to kind of do to get ready. Uh, and then when I sit down, I'll typically be able to just start working on a plan. You know, if if there's anything I tell uh, composers working on virtual instrument uh, projects or composing for media, it's that, you know, if... If you don't have a plan as to what you're working on, meaning you don't know how the piece starts, you don't know how it evolves, you don't know how it transitions, and you don't know how it ends, then you're very likely to be, you know, working on something that sounds amazing up until, you know, 60 seconds in, and then you don't know what to do with it. And now Mm -hmm. you, now you only got four hours left before you're supposed to deliver it. So, um, you know, having a plan is huge and that's something that 
Sometimes I'll actually sketch it out as a piano roll. Uh, other times I'll just make myself notes as markers and I'll say, well, here's where the piece needs to go here. Here's how it needs to transition. Here's where the hits are. Here's where we change mood or tempo. And then here's where the climax is and here's the ending. So I know where all that stuff is. And then I just go in and start filling it in with all of the, the musical ideas that I've been usually recently inspired by utilizing the textures and tones from the ideas that I, uh, I've gotten from listening to reference material. Um, and it's, it's never really about, I guess the best way to say it is it's, it's never really about staring at the doll, wondering what to do next. It's just about going back and tweaking and perfecting and trying to make it sound better. And, and, you know, if, if you're working on music production, there's no more valuable, uh, tool than getting up and leaving it or going, you know, going to bed and getting up the next day and listening to it. And if you don't have that, um, with such a short deadline, uh, then you're at a disadvantage. But a lot of times I, you know, I won't stay up late. I'll work till 1030, maybe 11 o'clock, and then I'll just go to bed and I'm an mm -hmm. early, early riser now. So I'll, I'll get up 530, maybe 630, come back and just start working on it. And it's amazing what those fresh ears hear. And even though, you know, I slept through six hours of my crunch time deadline, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, it's, I, I could benefit from it. <laughs> I benefit from that sleep and refreshing my ears more than if I would have just tried to stay and make it happen. Yeah. Just coming back with that fresh perspective. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I saw from the, a foundation for mastering virtual orchestration course that you, that you let me check out is um, one of the things you were talking about is when you talk about going from a sketch to having a final orchestration, I think that is definitely important in what you're talking about, how just starting from a sketch and then sort of mapping it out. Like I liked your approach of how you go about mapping the overall sketch to different instruments how you plan, you know, when it's going to sort of dip and rise as far as, you know, exciting parts or more mellow parts, just the overall, I think, taking a basic idea and then, then sort of devising your plan. I think it's really important. And it seems like you sort of apply that approach to even just for anything. It's just having that, that plan seems very important. Yeah. I mean, it's all, uh, Nowadays, how many times do you get in your car and not use your GPS to make sure you know where you're going? Mm -hmm. We don't. You don't just randomly point west and say, "I'm going to Malibu," and then, you know, ten minutes later, go, "Well, I guess I need to turn northwest now." And then mm -hmm. I need to turn. I need to probably need to go north for a while. Uh, yeah, I, 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 th <laughs> I think all of those things that uh, that I was that I put together in that course, which um, which we're probably about a month out from like the official launch to the public on that. Um, those are all tools that I do use regularly that do help me. Uh, and, and there are things that took me years to figure out, 
mm-hmm. by by watching other people work and watching other composers work and re- watching real orchestrators work and watching real conductors work with real instruments. It's all about you know how to make musical uh, expressive music, I should say, with those virtual instruments and and deliver something. So so yeah, having a plan is huge in in all yeah. a- aspects of your life regardless of if you get where you think you were going to go in the beginning. Yeah, definitely. Um when it comes to, you know, releasing your own albums, you know, and you have a lot of albums I've seen on your website of music that you've just released. Is this more music that you write for fun or what kind of music do you tend to write for your just, you know, when you're not composing just music that you write for your own enjoyment? Yeah, I I think you'll if, if you look through and listen through any of them, you know, if you listen through three, you'll hear that they're all every single the every single project's kind of different. I mean, I'm sure it has uh, a temperament and tone that speaks to my voice, but overall, the instrumentation is always different. The style is, um, you know, curated from uh, different influences, and if, for me, it's a way for me to explore something and create some music that I wish existed or that I think would be fun to work on or, Mm -hmm. you know, to push, uh, to push myself in a way that I hadn't tried before. You know, one of the, one of the projects I was like, how much silence can I use in music? How much space can I use in the music? Um, and then other ones, I, I think of things like, well, what if I produced an orchestra like a hip hop band? What would that, be like uh mm-hmm. it's just kind of kind of keeping uh keeping my imagination thriving and exercising it like a muscle yeah. um, and it may you know a lot of times i'd say half of the time when i release an album within a month somebody says hey i heard this we like it we want to we want you to write something in that style for this project or that project mm-hmm. or something. And then the other half of the time, you know, maybe a thousand people listen to it streaming or online or buy a CD or something. So it's not really, I've never really thought of it as being a recording artist or trying to sell albums. Um, if anything, it's more of a musical diary that now mm-hmm. I can look back and be like, here's the things I've been interested in and excited about over the last 10 years or so. And what do those mean now and what things are still with me and what things have changed. And if I'm lucky, some of those tracks get licensed over and over again for, you know, TV or commercials or other prod products, prod projects, I should say. How did you come about the gig for Ready Player One, which uh, you contributed some original original music for, and uh, it got used in the trailer and the promotional campaign, right? Yes. Um, uh, about a year ago, I started um, reviewing and eagerly taking a course about trailer music. And while I was doing that, I started to blog... Uh, do it like a video vlog journal, mm-hmm. just kind of sharing what I was learning and um, and there was a certain point where I was like, 
trying to figure out, was this something I really wanted to try to pursue? The landscape had changed quite a bit in music licensing, uh, not only in fashion, uh, but also in the players who, you know, make up the music licensing landscape, the tone and, and, uh, overall direction of movie trailers had evolved. I'm sure you remember like that all movie trailers used to have this like announcer that would say like, in a world where one (laughs) man, you know? And so, you know, I knew that the tide was changed. I knew there were probably new opportunities and I thought, you know, it still works in what I want to focus on, which is music for advertising. Um, so I'll start working on some tracks. I'll see if I could find a new publisher and that focuses on music for trailer music. And I did some research. I put together some new, new music specifically that I thought might be close to those styles. I shared it and I was, I was, uh, not, uh, just like anyone, I didn't get responses from a handful of, uh, people I spoke with. And then Mm -hmm. one, uh, one head of a music production company basically just messaged me back the same day and said, um, I have a project. We need it in a few hours. If you want to pitch on it, you can. And I said, yeah, great. And so he sent me the details and I wrote the, the first versions of the music for that. And then within a couple of weeks, he said, Hey, guess what? They looks like they want to use yours for the, for the, uh, ready player one feature at promotions. And they have an option to use it for the trailer. And I'm like, Oh, that's great. So that's awesome. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Uh, I was thrilled. Of course, anytime you can get to contribute to something Steven Spielberg does or, or any Mm -hmm. project on that level. Um, But it was it was another one of those projects. I think I had 18 hours. Uh, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I had 18 hours to put together the first pitch. Um, and since then, I've able to been able to pitch on probably a dozen more uh, trailer projects. And it's a it's just like any other aspect of music licensing world. I don't have any clue if any of them will be picked up. And, you know, I didn't even find out for sure that my music that I custom created to go with those uh, promos and the trailer were being used until the day it went live on Warner Brothers website. So you just don't know. Well, that's pretty exciting. You're just like, <laughs> oh, I'll check this out. And then you're like, whoa, that's my music. <laughs> you do. Yeah. Yeah. And I still go back. I like, I know what trailers I've pitched for and I go back and see, did anything new get released for those? You know, mm-hmm. did anything new get released for these? So, um, yeah, it was fun. It was very exciting and uh, inspiring to have my first pitch get picked up with a new uh, music production company and um, in some ways kind of kind of cement the idea that I should continue down that path and focus on creating more of a body of work for music for trailers in particular. Mm-hmm. 
That's awesome. What are some things that over the years that you've done, you know, maybe mistake wise that you've learned from that, I guess you feel like, or like, what are some important mistakes you think that you've made over the course of your career that you've learned from that have really helped you sort of where you are now? Uh, the, f- I, I think that's a great question. I ask all, I th- ask that question in all my interviews. Your, your, what have you learned from your failures? Um, I was producing a band when I uh, was in Chicago and th- it was on a pro tool system and the hard drive crashed the recording drive ah. and there was no backup. So everything we had recorded that day uh, was on that drive and the studio wasn't booked again for like 12 hours and I restarted that computer for 10 hours straight, just turning it off, restarting it, turning it off, restarting it until that hard drive booted up again. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I copied everything I could off of it. I only lost like one guitar uh, track. Um, and that failure, <laughs> uh, that almost terrible failure taught me to have duplicates, if not triplicates of all of your data and, uh, projects and sample libraries. So that's a big yeah, I was one. Gonna, I was, oh, good. I said, that's a big one. That one, that one stands out. And I, just like I'd mentioned with my backups and triplicates, uh, that one, I still think about to this day. Yeah. That's the first thing that popped in my head was earlier, how you were telling me how you have duplicates of everything. I was like, Oh, well that definitely makes sense now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and hard drives fail all the time. It's not a matter of it's like a motorcycle driver. It's not a matter of of if they're cr- going to crash. Statistically, it's when are they going to have an accident. It's the same with a hard drive, you know. Yeah, that's one of the things I've heard a lot of times with recording studios is horror stories of people just losing everything. Yeah, you know, or like uh, in like in Florida, they have a lot of you know hurricanes and thunderstorms and i've just heard of stories of people just saying like if you don't you know when that happens just unplug everything because your computer will just get fried and lose everything just destroy your computer in the process too yeah a uh, a battery backup and power conditioner that's almost the second thing in the list too so all of my gear can if the power goes out it still stays on for you know 15 20 minutes so i can shut everything down that's important mm-hmm. And if there's a surge of electricity, it blows the fuse in the power conditioner, not my equipment. So mm-hmm. those are things that, you know, for a hundred and whatever, 50 bucks, uh, very valuable investments. Yeah. It's one of those things I think a lot of people overlook. A lot of times it's, okay, I want to start doing this. And you'd think about just the gear you need to get just to get it started. But then you don't think about the gear you need to get to keep it, you know, moving continuously or um, thinking about the possibility of losing data or what happens if this goes wrong. And then yeah. you're just like a deer in headlights. <laughs> you don't know what, you don't know what to do now. Cause you didn't prepare for it. You're just more just worried about just kind of getting going, let alone the, you know, the being able to keep it continuous. There's, I think there's so many failures um, when it comes to music production not that I had, you know, horrible mixes that I released so much as it's okay to fail when you're experimenting on 
trying new things in music production or trying to learn how to do virtual instrument orchestration or trying new techniques. Um, so those fail. There's so many failures there that it's hard to pinpoint one in particular um, when it comes to the actual aspect of music production. Um, but recently I did work on a pitch for about eight hours and I listened to it and I had three hours left and I just had to walk away from it because I didn't want to turn something in that, you know, would might make me look bad. There was just something about it that I hadn't gotten correct that mm -hmm. wasn't right and it wasn't my particular uh, strength, the style of music, the style of composition. Um, and so rather than turn something in that I felt was subpar and having, you know, my, the music production company think, oh, that's, yeah, that's not good. We're not going to turn, we're not going to pass it along. I just opted to not turn it in and, mm. and maybe, you know, revisit it at another time. And I might, you know, spend days working on it to figure out how to make it work. And I'll probably learn more from that um, mm -hmm. than uh, I definitely learn more from doing that than if I would have just sent it off and mm -hmm. fingers what crossed. What kind of style was it? Can you talk about it? Yeah, it was like, um, it was like jazz big band orchestra. Mm. Um, yes. So I think that, I think the key to working on virtual instruments um, for different styles starts with so much more than just knowing how to write in those styles. Mm -hmm. You also have to know how to manipulate your MIDI to get it to perform in those styles. And, and then even more possibly important than all that, you have to know what virtual instruments actually can work in those styles you know just mm -hmm. as as every every sample library is recorded in a different space those spaces you know speak towards something some big film scores are you know recorded at one studio and those mm -hmm. those scores have a sound because of those rooms mm -hmm. um and then those instruments are are made in a way to perform different uh, different types of, I don't know, acrobats in some way, Ac acrobatics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can't force a library to do something it's not built for. That's one of the things that I've come to learn over time, especially you know working in a company that makes these, is that you have to understand what they're used for. And if you're trying to sort of use them in a way that they're not built you're not really going to get the best experience. So that's one of the, another things that kind of comes with doing this profession is you have to know your tools and how they work. Yes. Yeah. Completely agree. What are some of the most important things that you think new composers should aim to start doing early in their careers? Um, well, the first thing, uh, as you probably have heard from my, <laughs> from being a, 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 a part of the beta group of the workshop uh, mm -hmm. it is listening practice. Um, the thing I can always tell 
uh, about hearing younger composers working on orchestral scores is, is if they actually have ever really listened to orchestral scores or not. Um, the same can be said for any other style of music. If, mm-hmm. if you don't know what that, what a real group of players sound like per, performing and producing that style of music, then how do you think you're going to try to match that, uh, or mimic that? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, uh, that's one thing. Um, yeah, there's yeah, because you're you're big on uh, deconstructing scores, right? I remember I saw, I think you posted on Facebook or something a while ago that you bought the the original the score for I think it was the original Batman. What it yeah, was. yeah. Uh, you know what? I am. Here's the thing. I can I can read music. I can sight read. Um, I know I've ta- I I had music theory in college, but I don't think about any of that stuff at all right now i rarely think about keys um i think i think more about patterns and so when you say i deconstruct scores um i i guess i i feel like i deconstruct scores like a 17 year old music student would uh, in some ways, because I'm just looking at the patterns. I'm looking at like which instruments are playing, how they stack up, and which mm-hmm. instruments are playing the patterns together. And um, it's such a it's such a crucial part of creating the sounds. Uh, and I'm thinking about lines, like how is the what is the musical line. Mm-hmm. How how are the counter melodies? What is the rhythm? How do those all kind of blend in and and work together? And you know questions and answers and reinforce things. Uh, I think it's valuable to study scores, and you don't you don't have you don't have to be thinking about every aspect of what key it's in and what chords are changing because that's not really what's going on though that's the that's a backwards analysis of a score mm-hmm. whereas the the parts that make it work are are those lines and patterns that you kind of make out so uh yes i love to w- look through scores and listen to them and you know i often stop and play back parts and think about which uh instruments were used to create different textures and and hopefully try to bring that into my own practice and work. Is there any certain things that you've learned from doing that that you utilize all the time when it comes to you composing? Like certain little tips or orchestration tips of uh, things that or common things that you see in a lot of scores that you've sort of dissected? Uh, there's two big things that come to top of mind. Number one is you don't need to try to rewrite how music is made, and especially with most virtual instruments, it's going to sound horrible if you abandon um, the foundations of great orchestral music. You, there's very little reason for you, for composers, to try to be creating, you know, in in quarter tone scales and with so many aleatoric effects in with virtual instruments um 
just because they think they want to make something new, uh, those things rarely work well in the vast majority of virtual instruments because they're just not made to mm -hmm. try to recreate those things. The second thing is really simple, and it's that your bass instruments probably could stay in the bass part, and your your you know lead uh, soprano instrument can stay up high in the lead part. And those are that's like a really simple thing to think about. It's like your lead line stays on top, your bass stays on the bottom, you're starting to actually uh, make something that will work and translate mm -hmm. and, and be digestible to the listener to begin with. Yeah, I think that's a common thing that a lot of people tend to do wrong. I know especially for me when I first started uh, getting into even home recording, like understanding the frequency spectrum. And especially when it comes to instruments, you know, like you don't need to have a lot of low end on your guitar. You can cut that out, let the bass sit where it needs to. And the same thing goes for orchestration. Just like, you know, if you have first violins, you could usually keep them playing, you know, the main melody line up high. You don't really need them to go low. You can kind of understanding, you know, first, second violins, violas, cellos, basses. Okay. Like that sort of covers that kind of like low to high frequency spectrum. And then, but then after that, you have the orchestration of, not you know i think a lot of people tend to just stack stuff early on just okay like i'm gonna start working on an orchestra you know orchestration piece and then they just you know have like five or ten different things playing the same line and then they're like oh how come i can't hear the woodwinds anymore yeah or or the opposite where they have 10 things going on at one time um i mean you as listeners we can only digest three four maybe five possible different aspects of music at once Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, keeping it simple and learn to grow, uh, is important. And then you, you just reminded me of, um, and justice for Jason. Do you know that album? Oh yeah. The one where they actually <laughs> turned the bass up and justice for all. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I thought that was funny. It's, it's funny that you mentioned that that was like the first metal album that I ever can like realize or like that I was actually conscious of that I can like in my early days I think I was a kid and uh I came across Injustice for All from you know my parents had like a suitcase full of tapes but yeah yeah that it's funny that's a, a common question or, or like some uh, something that I always hear people bring up all the time is you know if that bass should have been turned up more on that album which I think so I mean when I first heard that album a long time ago I thought it sounded really good and then over time your ear gets better and you're like, you notice a lot of things about it that could have been better. But to me, I think just because I have that early connection with it, I still wouldn't change anything about it. <laughs> the, um, I don't know if you saw the documentary, the Steve, uh, Thompson, Tom, Thomas Thompson. He was the mixing engineer. Mm -hmm. He, he said he, um, I think he said he considered taking another week after, they'd approve the mixes to do another version of the, of the mixes the way he thought they should be. Uh, and I've always, I've always wished I could hear what that would sound like. <laughs> or like a, like a remastering of like a Led Zeppelin album or something. It's just kind of like, why just Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and that's one thing I think that's exciting and interesting unless you're doing, unless you're doing purely orchestral music, the opportunity to create 
new Sonic Scapes is pretty open and unlimited right now. Um, anytime you have anything that you say is a hybrid piece of music, you know, the sky is the limit as to what it could be or what it could sound like. Where do you see trailer music going in the future? Being that now we're kind of in the era of the Brahms, where everyone's kind of doing that that Hans Zimmer big epic, you know, very ostinato, big brass. You know, do you feel like it's ever going to sort of change? It seems like it's been kind of that same, like a lot of people just want that same thing. But I'm curious to see where it goes in the future and where people take it. I think it's already started to change. And I think uh, we're in a... We're in a real experimental kind of phase from what I'm listening. I'm in listening to just about every trailer that comes out. Um, and then I'm included on a lot of briefs for pitching music for trailers. The, the music supervisors and trailer houses are much more open to new, unique or experimental things. Uh, and I think it's it could be really a matter of what direction kind of without any master plan takes hold as to what maybe the next phase of music for trailers is. But I think it's going to be pretty exciting in that, um, you know, there's quite a few trailers out right now that don't utilize Brahms. They're utilizing a whole bunch of different kinds of textures that you wouldn't think of at first for trailers. They're, you know, there's still hits and impacts and sound design that everyone's comfortable. But if you, Mm -hmm. if you go through a handful of trailers, um, you're going to, you're going to start saying, Oh, that's such a weird, you know, Chinese, guitar sample why i can't believe they used that in this giant trailer and then you'll go oh that's uh you know another trailer that you'll hear they're using you know different collections of snaps and claps with kind of a hip-hop feel to it and Mm -hmm. there's i think there's i think it's open it's open and ready for a shift and that's where i feel what it is going on right now, but I, I don't know if I can particularly say that I know what the future will hold. I have some, you know, I have some, uh, some guess that I'm, you know, I'm focusing on creating some music in a specific way and hoping that maybe that is something that comes along and people are excited about. Uh, yeah. The next thing that catches on. Yeah. Yeah, I I hope it just ends up being just like you're saying, just experimentation, you know, like Brian Tyler working on the score for Fast and the Furious. You know, when you watch those interviews, he's like, yeah, I just started off with the little Calypso drum beat and then he put some strings to it. But then there's like elements of dubstep and electronic music and it just people who have all these different influences and just put them together. I think that's always just the best way is just trying stuff that. It's just your influences. Like, I like this and this. I'm going to put it together. And you're just kind of creating sort of your own favorite thing. Yeah, I'm all for that. I think, um, as you probably have heard me say, I I think blending and 
working with different genres and fusing different genres together is exciting. But just like I really love peanut butter and I love broccoli, I'd never eat a peanut butter broccoli sandwich. (laughs) Some things, they may make it to movie trailers and and on albums and but they just won't ever sit right for me you know hopefully there's no people out there listening that like to put peanut butter on broccoli that are offended so. yeah it's no offense to anyone out there that's a peanut butter broccoli fan <laughs> so so what's next for you what are some things that you haven't done yet that are on the goal list things that you're uh looking to try and hammer down on in 2018? Um, The big thing uh, you mentioned about um, the course, uh, Foundation for Virtual Orchestration, that course was kind of developed in collaboration with the 100 or so uh, people who signed up. Um, And that's been so exciting to see it come together. And yeah, you're, yeah, you did a really good job on it from the stuff I've seen. It's really well put together, and I'm sure it's only getting better with you know the different content that you're adding to it. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, right now I'm in a place basically I've everything that's out and in it um, was created as as the whole curriculum was built based on what feedback I got, and now I'm at a place where I'm going back with someone who really creates you know, online courses and tutorials, and they're, they're actually rewriting, uh, rewriting the material and we're going to do all new videos. So it's a, it's a big undertaking because, you know, it's, I don't know, I think it's close to 20 or 30 hours of video and lots of writing. And, um, so just that whole undertaking of trying to learn how to be an educator was a big uh, leap last year, mm-hmm. but I feel like we've I've got a, a enough people have said how, that it's valuable and they've learned something, if not multiple things, that it's definitely worth focusing on and and creating and and so that's like the big top of mind for me right now. Uh, the other thing is I've got my own interview series that I'm trying to do. I'm trying to interview, uh, one or two, uh, music professionals every month. Um, people that, nice. that I think can really help others who are, you know, interested in pull, taking away some inspiration or, or techniques or tools or something something mm-hmm. along those lines and that's a great way you know like I said I, I can I can be a hermit so it's a it's a great way for me to get a chance to talk to people who I'm excited to talk to about things that we're both excited to talk about anyway mm-hmm. so now I'm just skyping and recording it as it goes uh, that's awesome I was gonna say music wise um I've got a lot of trailer type music in the works and it's a matter of um it's a matter of picking a direction to finish i really would like to do a full trailer album uh this year of my own so it's a matter of deciding on what i feel i'm gonna gamble on you know hope maybe as what might be the new kind of sound in trailer music uh and then i have a never-ending list of my own personal project, like music albums. So awesome. Yeah. 
where are some places that people can find you online? Uh, it's very easy to find me at uh, Don Bodin, D-O-N-B-O-D-I-N.com. That's my music website. And uh, I'm on Facebook. And then Sample Library Review is uh, is my, my uh, music production, music technology blog. I've got uh, nine other contributors that write for it, mostly reviewing software instruments. So those are the two big places to find me. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Uh, you, you definitely have a lot of very cool uh, insight into the business, and I think you definitely uh, are going to give some people some food for thought as far as you know, maybe some different ways to approach getting into you know either the ad campaigns or just doing music for media. You know, and uh, you know, looking forward to seeing everything else that you do. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. Great. Well, it was a real pleasure. Thanks, Craig. As always, we want to thank you guys for tuning into the podcast. And if you enjoy these podcasts, please make sure to subscribe so you can catch all the episodes as we post them. As we're always trying to bring you guys awesome content and really great interviews with really awesome composers and musicians. And also, if you do enjoy these podcasts, please make sure to spread the word. Tell your friends. If you find us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts, make sure to like us, rate us, give us a review, and let us know what you guys think. So until next time, I want to say thanks again for listening, and we will see you soon.